0: If you have a Bible tonight, we're gonna to be in Acts 11. And I've been looking forward to this chapter and we've been building up to this chapter for the last two weeks. So This is really a, a kind of a conclusion and a trilogy of messages that all center around a very pivotal point in history. I, again, I, I often talk about Acts being church history, but it's also world history. Uh, and because what happens in Acts didn't just impact a little group of people in a little part of the world. What happens in Acts impacts the whole world, right? Because what happens in Acts uh, may start in a small part of the world, but it spreads to have global implications and have a global impact. Uh, and of course, Acts begins in Jerusalem, but it ends in Rome. And, and again, as Luke tells that story, he does that, of course, because that's what happened, but also because God is wanting us to see uh, that uh, what began in Jerusalem, what began in the Old Testament in in a single nation has spread to all nations, has spread to all people. And of course, that was God's plan from the very... Beginning. Uh, tonight again we'll be concluding what has been a three-part deep dive on the church's expansion. The church does not expand if we don't get through to Acts 10 and 11. Of course chronologically that makes sense because we don't get to Acts 12 unless we get through Acts 11 but, but historically speaking and, and, and globally speaking the church does not leave the Middle East if not for what happened in Acts 10 and what is followed up and responded to in Acts 11. So we've talked about Acts 10 for two weeks. Tonight, we'll get into Acts 11 uh, as we see the church expand beyond Judea. We've talked about that word. We've we've used that word a lot this past couple of uh, weeks and and the last couple of months, really, that word beyond. Uh, Beyond Judea, beyond the Jewish and Judaism roots, beyond what was easy and comfortable for the church, beyond the boundaries set around it and by it. We've spent the last few weeks in what is really one of those chapters in the Bible that is more than the sum of its verses, more than the sum of its points uh such a monumental point in history coming off the heels of course of Saul of Tarsus conversion which was in chapter 9 uh and remember in chapter 9 that Ananias kind of teases or God tells Ananias something that really teases and previews something that's coming because God tells Ananias that Saul of Tarsus is going to be the apostle to the what? to the Gentiles remember and that previews that this story isn't over that yeah it looks like things came to ran their course in Acts 1 through 8 but Acts 9 is a new beginning and Acts 10 11 is the church coming to terms with the fact that their mission has just started their journey has just begun it's almost like Acts 10 follows the story of Saul converting uh, to the to the church to punctuate this seismic shift that's taking place in history and I know Tonight will be challenging. The last couple of weeks have been kind of, at some points, some ways, challenging. This conversation is something that's so important that the church continues to have because this is our identity, and as we'll talk in a little bit, our our future depends on our response to this same event as it did to, to the you know, contemporary generation's response. So just to recap uh, where the church was at this point in time, around 40 AD, the church based in Jerusalem had saturated the reg- region of Judea and Galilee with the gospel. And within that context, it was booming. But the question was, what about beyond that context? What happens with the gospel and what happens, if anything, with the church beyond this context? That was the pressing question. Honestly, the church didn't really know what was next and didn't really know if there could be something next or if there should be or needed to be something beyond where they were and what they were comfortable doing. So in terms of expansion, in terms of the mission, what what was in store for the church beyond Judea? Now, I think we can kind of understand why they would be a little bit you know, trepidatious or a little bit you know, you know, uh, concerned about what, would, what happens if they step out of their comfort zone. But this is the same church, however, that has shown us in Acts that they're not afraid of anything. So we get to Acts you know, 9 and 10 and 11, and all of a sudden the church is kind of worried about where it's going to go and what it's going to do as if it doesn't really know if it can go there and should go there. But this has not really been the church's you know, MO for the last first eight chapters, has it? I mean, the church has not shown itself to be afraid of anything. If anything, the church has shown itself to be bold and brash and willing to do anything it needed to do to accomplish its mission. In a few short years, the church exploded on the scene. It was obvious to those involved. They had the hope of the world. They had the information that could save people from death and the grave and hell. They had the keys to the kingdom of God. They had an obligation to tell the world or their world about Jesus and they wasted no time. Don't you remember that they went to the streets at Pentecost. They went to jail if it required. And then when questioned, why are you so determined to break our laws and to defy our authorities? When Peter was on trial in Acts five, why must you continue to disobey our orders to not preach about Jesus and not preach the resurrection? And what was Peter's response? We must obey God rather than men. So Peter made no you know, bones about it. I am gonna do what God has required of me. But this is the same guy that a few chapters later had to decide how strong his determination was. He was very bold and very brash against the Jewish authorities that told him to not speak the name of Jesus in his town and in his country But would that same determination take him beyond his country? As we found out, this is where some tension began to take place or began to set in place. Because as we found the last two weeks, Peter's sense of must was actually limited. To him, the gospel stopped with Israel's bloodline and it was to stay within Israel's borders. Why? Well, it's kind of complicated. There's a little bit of religion, a little bit of nationalism, a little bit of self-righteousness, and a little bit of prejudice involved. Now, of course, Christianity was, after all, a byproduct of Judaism. So it was only natural that it focused on the Jewish people because it was all based on and rooted in Jewish history, right? I mean, the whole context for the for the church was the nation of Israel because it was based on Abraham's family, Moses' law, David's dynasty. These are Jewish people and Jewish people would respond to these Jewish heroes. So clearly the church was from the Jews for the Jews. Jesus was the Jewish Messiah. It's all over the Gospels. He's called the son of David. He's called the next Moses. He's called the next Elijah. No, there's no mention of anybody else, but the Jews in and around his movement. And yes, there was some bystanders that admired Jesus, but overall the entire context for his ministry and the movement was rooted in Israel's heritage and Israel's religion. The backdrop of his message was the Jewish law, the Jewish sacrificial system. But there was, however, and this is unavoidable, there was, however, a few that seemed to believe that Jesus had come to do something for more than just Israel. And most wondered if it was only hype, was it hyperbole, or was it true? How John the Baptist introduced Jesus that day Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world? Now, the Lamb of God was a reference to the temple of God, and the temple of God was only paying for sins of Israel. But John did not misspeak here. John was very intentional here. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin. And that phrase world in the Greek is cosmos, which means the universe. It doesn't mean a single people, a single race, a single nation. It means every inch of creation finds its redemption in Jesus Christ. Jesus, of course, would go on to die. Of course, he rose back to life, kick-started his church, and his followers, once afraid, once scared of what might become of them if they remained associated with a man, killed for treason and killed for heresy, now were emboldened by and empowered with fearlessness. As we've read through Acts, we've seen that faith in Jesus and the power of his resurrection had changed them, and it would continue to change them as areas of their life showed the need for redemption and resurrection. His death had brought them forgiveness. His resurrection brought them new life. Their faith made all of this personal. God was with them and would never leave them. Jesus told them that this wasn't just for them to revel in, but they were to spread this good news. And he also told them that this good news was not just for the Jewish people. But it was for the whole world. But it was like it just kept bouncing off their foreheads. They just didn't register. It didn't register with them that Jesus literally meant the whole world as in everybody. And this is where, as we learn with Acts 10, this is where the work there was work yet to do. And that the resurrection was wanting to do yet a work in Peter's life and in his followers. In the story in Acts 10 or preceding Acts 10, we see Peter raises up a disabled man. Peter raises up a dead woman, foreshadowing that God was wanting to raise up Peter from something that was an obstacle to his flesh. As God tells him in Acts 10, rise up Peter, as you raised up the woman, as you raised up the man, so am I raising you up from this obstacle that is in your heart. What was that obstacle? An unwillingness to truly expand the church, to break from a static religious model and a skeptical nationalistic model. Static religion, which is the temple model. There's one building in one city for one people. But the church wasn't like that. A nationalistic model that says it's for a certain group of people and it's skeptical as if it can help anybody else that doesn't look like us or talk like us or dress like us or act like us. On one hand, there were those who did not want to go, and on the other hand, there were those who did not want to go to the Gentiles, specifically. Even though the message had proven plenty of times to work on non-Jewish hearers, which suggested it wasn't a can it work question, it was a should it work question. And that kind of sounds wrong, doesn't it? Should others get a chance to believe? Of course they should. But the early church literally had that question. Should others get a chance? And they came down on, no, they shouldn't. Now, they knew it was a terrible thing to say out loud. They just decided we just won't go. So nobody will question, you know, we'll just stand still and nobody will ever know the real reason why we're not going. But if you really want to know the real reason why we're not going, it's because we don't want to. (laughs) Kind of sounds bad when you say it out loud, doesn't it? Now, I know we've hit on this for three weeks. It must be important, right? But the Great Commission is the lifeblood of the church. Remember this from our Sunday night group discussion? The Great Commission is the most important imperative. What's imperative mean? It's a non-negotiable command. You must do this. The Great Commission is the most important imperative of Jesus. It's the lifeblood of the health and the growth of the church. As in, if we do not obey the Great Commission, there is the health of the church is waning and the growth of the church stops pretty serious, isn't it? And I want to say this, beware, beware of how good religion is at excusing us from obeying the great commission, because religion will give you all the excuses you could ever ask for as to why you should not go, as to why they should not hear It always is coming up with good excuses, and it's good at excluding others from benefiting from it. And the scary thing is, the scary thing is after religion repeats itself again and again and justifies itself again and again, we'll feel convicted when we go against its rules and we'll be less convicted by the Bible and more convicted by some religious system that isn't biblical. It's scary how that works religion's goal is to muddy the waters confuse and ultimately control and disable the church from doing any good now where all this gets interesting was when peter finally came to terms with god's will for his heart and for the church deep down peter knew he was on the precipice of something way beyond himself but he was proudly jewish he was reared and raised to be the best jewish believer possible and god didn't want him to lose that did he Nothing wrong with his Jewishness. God didn't want him to cast those traditions away, did he? Being Jewish came with a lot of positives. He was looking for a Messiah. If he hadn't been Jewish, he wouldn't have been in Judea. He wouldn't have followed Jesus when he was on the Lake of Galilee, right? So clearly there was a lot of positives. He was looking for a Messiah. He was looking for the Son of God. He was the first to confess that Jesus was indeed the Son of God. And quick to remind people that Jesus was the one and only Messiah. He preached the gospel loudly and boldly on opening day to the Jews. He shared the good news with the Jews in the temple. And when the Jewish authorities said stop, Peter wouldn't stop. Under Peter's leadership, the church took the message to all of Judea. Thousands were saved, hundreds were made missionaries, and boldly and zealously preached throughout the country. But, As this message spread, many who weren't Jewish, many who weren't Jewish and had not heard of Abraham, Moses, or David, but when they heard of Jesus, they believed. No one expected this to happen. No one thought it could happen because they thought you had to have the Old Testament to understand who Jesus was. But as they preached that God became a man and took on the sin of the world and died in our place and rose to give us new life, as they preached that Gentiles who did not know Moses, did not know David, did not know the law, did not know the prophets, the Gentiles heard of Jesus and they believed. And the craziest thing happened. They believed and their hearts were changed. And it turns out the Jewish context, the gospel didn't need its Jewish context to bring hope and faith to whoever heard that Jesus was enough. Suddenly Gentiles were asking and wanting to know more. And here's where the negative part of Peter's heritage comes in. Under Peter's leadership, Gentiles could ask and Gentiles could seek, but the church was not going to move towards them. Not one step. The church was not for them after all. Because of Peter's Jewishness, sheltered him. According to the Jewish law, Peter was not to even enter a Gentile's house, was not to worship alongside one, so they could not go to the Gentiles. So even though Peter heard Jesus say go to the whole world, they were concerned what that might would look like if Gentiles heard and wanted a place in. But again, all that changed in Acts 10. All of that changed. And I can't overstate it. Everything changes for Peter in Acts 10. Now we don't have to rehash the story, but I want to mention something that cannot, be, have, cannot have been a coincidence. Do you remember where, where was Cornelius from when he sent for Peter? And where did God tell Peter to go to to meet with Cornelius? It was the city of Caesarea Philippi. And do you remember why that city would have been significant for Peter? Because that's the place that Peter went with Jesus way off the beaten path up north toward, Syria, toward Lebanon and Syria. That's the place that Jesus took his 12 disciples to make his proclamation about what he was building. Do you remember that? that He took them to Caesarea Philippi, and the context for that is at Caesarea Philippi there was this giant shrine to the god, the Greek god Hades, and Hades was the reminder to the world that you are you are finite you are fragile that you will ultimately you're going to die and you're going to be trapped under my clutches Hades was a reminder and it was a reminder to the world that the the Greek you know standards and ethics of immorality and the culture that was so sinful and so depraved there was no escaping it and eventually you would die and eventually you'd be forgotten and eventually there was no hope for anybody or ultimately there was no hope for anybody and By all means, this little Jewish movement had no power beyond its Jewish context. But don't you remember what Peter said that day when Jesus stood in front of that shrine and said, who do people say that I am? And Peter said, you are the Christ. You are the son of the living God. Yes, death may be rearing its head. And yes, we may feel its implications, but you can overcome. We believe that you will give us victory. And Peter, Jesus said, Peter, you are right. You have won the prize. And then he says this, Peter, On this rock, I will build my church on your confession, on your faithfulness, that what you just said, that that's true, that I am the Christ, I am the Messiah, and that hell cannot stop what I am building. And you can't, I can't overstate how monumental this was as Jesus stood at this place known as the gates of hell. And Jesus pointed his finger to every demon and to the enemy himself and said, you will not stop my movement into every culture, every tribe, every tongue. This is the power to save. And it was on this journey to Caesarea that Peter was reminded of the church's purpose and mission. And Jesus building his church, which had global ambitions, power to save all people from all evil. And there in Acts 10, Peter shares the gospel with that family. The Holy Spirit falls on them and fills them as he did the Jews. And it's there that Peter knew this changes everything. Peter knew the church had To step beyond its comfort zone if it was to fulfill its complete purpose. So Peter calls for a meeting. And believe me, there were as many calling a meeting for him as he was for them. There were so many questions. Gentiles, Jews, so different Within, within the Gentiles. There's so many diverse cultures. How could they be saved from the clutches of hell that had control of them? How in the world would the church spread to so many cultures and deal with so many differences? How could they ensure that everyone dresses the same and sings the same and believes the same and behaves the same? This would be impossible to, over, to, 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 to control. Everybody was on edge. No one believed. No one knew where this would go. Many were scared. Most were worried. Because to most of the Jewish Christians, the idea of a church for everyone was beyond them. And that leads us to Acts 11 verses 1 through 4. Now the apostles and the brethren who were in Judea heard that the Gentiles had also received the word of God. As in just as the Jews, the Gentiles also, and when they say the Gentiles, they mean, hey, if the, if, the, if the Romans can believe, then anybody can believe. Because Cornelius was a Roman centurion who just happened to have been dwelling in Caesarea. He was a Roman, though. A Roman centurion, and when Peter came up to to Jerusalem, those of the circumcision contended with him, and that's that's referring to Jewish Christians who believe that their Jewishness was as important to their salvation as their Christianness. Does that make sense? That you had to be a Jew before you could be a Christian. That you could not get in unless you were like them. So, can you imagine? Can you imagine a world where Acts 10 happens and the response isn't a celebration? The response isn't, wow, the Roman centurion, one of the Roman centurions, like the people that killed Jesus, one of those has been saved? I mean, hallelujah, look what God can do. But what was the response? They were mad about it. They were The word contend there means they criticized him. They were angry about it. saying, you went to uncircumcised men, to uncircumcised men, and ate with them. They're more mad that he was at dinner with them than they were that he preached the gospel, but they're mad about that too. They were mad that he associated with a Gentile. And Peter explained to them in order from the beginning saying, so Peter, let me just make it very, present this as best as I can. Peter is 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 one against hundreds at this point. I mean, he's not got a, you know, a, a, a pew of people behind him saying, don't mess with our guy. And this is the leader of the church. And he's, you know, I mean, he, he's thinking, am I going to get stoned? Am I going to get killed? Am I going to get thrown out? I mean, he's not worried about getting voted out. He's worried about getting thrown out, as in killed. Now, I got to just make, I got to be very honest with you. This is nothing but just racism i mean they did not like gentiles they did not they hated them no, not all of them but these people that were contending with him which was the majority of the people people that were check it members of the church this is just nothing but evil gospel gatekeeping vile hatred not going to mince my words there I know I've tried to delicately talk about how this wasn't entirely malicious on the church's part, how their traditions made it hard for them to see the bigger picture, but, but there's no way to say that it was okay what they were doing. They were literally angry that people got saved. And again, it wasn't that they didn't think they could get saved, it's that they didn't want them to get saved. Makes us feel better about some of our problems, doesn't it? I mean, these are people that started the church, right? And they just don't see this as possible and they don't want it to be a possibility. Again, they hated the Gentiles for so many reasons. Culturally, they believed they were incongruous and beyond reconciliation. I want you to pay attention to something. As God was expanding the church in the first century, the church was not only going to grow, the church was not going to grow only reaching people that were like them. This is what God is trying to show us 2,000 years later. The church was not going to grow if it was only going to reach people that they thought were already like them because they reached that limit. And that was never God's intention to begin with because all of us are sinners. Even if we do look religious, we all are sinners. But the Jews had a little trouble seeing that in their own selves. This is where churches hit an impasse and never get around it. People say all the time, I say all the time I want to grow I want to make disciples I want to obey the Great Commission but then I don't want to reach people that make me feel uncomfortable I mean what's that yeah I want to reach I want to go and reach people I want to see people saved I want to grow our church but I don't want to reach people that makes me feel uncomfortable I'm weary about certain people because I don't know if they can really fit in I don't know if they can really get saved I don't know if they can really respond I mean that's our natural strategy I'm not trying to pick on anybody but that's our nature our nature says we should only reach and engage people, th- we should only en- reach and engage those that are most like us. And let me tell you what this does. This, this, is, this strategy is void of the love of God because does God only reach people that, he lo- that that are like him? If that was the case, there would be nobody that he would reach, Right? So this strategy, well, I'm only going to go to people that I'm comfortable going to or that I kind of like and that are already like me and yeah, they're not saved, but they already, they're pretty good people otherwise. I mean, I've had, listen, you don't, whew, you don't know how many people, how many churches are full of people that w- would say that this is their strategy. I'm not knocking anybody. I'm just saying this is this stuff we don't really know that we don't hear ourselves say. Well, we just need some more people like us. But what does that mean? It's void of God's love, isn't it? Because God's love says, I don't care what you're like. I love you and that leaves no room for God's grace because to suppose that there are people out there that don't need grace or don't need a transformation is to really deny the fact that there are people that need to get saved I, I, I say this because churches develop cultures easily and religion quickly solidifies that culture and tries to fight and protect it to quickly to quickly as possible render the church ineffective in the great commission So I'm telling you, Satan is hard at work, like a roaring lion. And here he is in Acts 11, roaring at Peter. We need to be aware of it, lest we give in to his nature. So Peter goes on to explain the events of Acts 10. And what he does from verses five through verse 10 is he basically just recounts that story. I was at Joppa, I had a vision. God said, eat, this, eat these animals. I said, no, Lord, I'll never eat unclean animals. He did, then he begins to put the pieces together. The unclean animals were Gentiles. And I was telling God, I'll never go to Gentiles because I don't like Gentiles. But then God said, no, 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 Peter, that's not right. And then God, I said, okay, God, I'll go. And of course he went. And we know the rest of that story. Look at verse 11. At that very moment, three men stood before the house where I was, having sent, f- sent for me from Caesarea. The Spirit of the Lord told me to go with him, doubting nothing. Moreover, these six brethren accompanied me, and we entered the man's house. And he told us how he had seen an angel standing in his house, who said to him, send men to Joppa to call for Simon, whose surname is Peter. So Peter is telling the story verbatim, which is the word of God, which is why we preach the word of God. Peter tells him the story, who will tell you by words by which you and all your household will be saved. So Peter preaches the gospel. And as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell upon them as upon us at the beginning. That is such a big verse. They did not think this was possible. They realized that they did not have the market on the anointing power of God. That God would anoint whomever he wanted to, regardless of their race, background, History, etc. If we respond, verse sixteen. Then I remembered the word of the Lord, how He said, "John indeed baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit." And I realized that was not just to the Jews, but also to the Gentiles. And if I could add a verse, if you have a list of verses that you put on your Mount Rushmore, I know that's only four, but if you have verses that you think, that, "Man, these are big verses." John three sixteen, Romans eight twenty eight, Philippians 1, We could go on and on, right? Psalm 23, all of them. If you have verses that you put up there as, man, these are big verses. Could I offer you Acts eleven seventeen 17 as one of those big verses? If therefore God gave the same gift as he gave us when we believed on the Lord, and here's the big part of it. Who was I that I could withstand God? Who was I that I could stand in God's way, knowing good and well that I was opposing him? Now, my response to verse 17, it it makes me speechless every time I read it. And it also... Had the same effect on them, verse 18. When they heard these things, they became silent because that's what verse 17 does to you. It leaves you speechless. Who was I to stand in God's way? They were silent and then I believe it was a few people at a time that began praising God. God. It was not an all in unison at one time clap. It was a, wow, you're right, Peter. We're wrong. And not everybody agreed. I'm sure some people left the building at this because they show back up in Acts 15 with more fire from hell than they were here in Acts 11. So the devil doesn't give up. But not everybody said, hey, this is great. But over time, they begin to glorify God saying, then God has also granted to the Gentiles repentance to life. So they make this declaration. That settles, that settles it then. If God has done that, we can't deny it. And we best get to work facilitating this movement. If indeed this is what he wants to do. And if indeed this is where he is going. So they were at a crossroads. They knew it. They had in possession the keys to heaven, the hope of nations, the plan of salvation. And God says to them, there's no boundaries. There's no prejudices. There's no restrictions. God has a plan. They knew the church was created to be a community built around believers for all the nations. And I think suddenly it all began to dawn on them. Remember how when Jesus Jesus told them, I'm gonna give you the keys to the kingdom and whatever you loose, whatever you bind will be done. As in, as if when you gather for official Jesus purposes, you have that power, not in and of yourselves, but the Holy Spirit who meets with you. Remember what he said in Matthew 18, that where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am. I mean, it began to dawn on them. Wow, this is incredibly sobering power. And if, if we believe this was our true And if this, if we believe this is really what happens when we come together, we would be doing whatever we could to get as many people in our midst as possible so that they might could experience what we get to experience on any any given Sunday, wouldn't we? Where they came down was this meant they could, they were to go deep and wide that nothing could stand in their way. And suddenly they knew they could not get in their own way. Because God was calling them beyond walls, pews, and traditions to reach a people with the hope of Jesus Christ. If anything got in their way, they were to tear it down. If anything worked, they were to double their efforts. But if it stopped working, they had to figure out what would. They knew this. And I think this is kind of where we see the rest of Acts going. So I'm gonna, this is kind of big, big picture vision casting for the next five minutes. They knew their goals were to exalt Jesus and amplify the gospel. That's all they were to do. All of a sudden, all their Jewish gatekeeping that they had in their mind, we got to do this and do this and keep them out and stop them from getting here. They realized, wow, that's, that, all that's wrong. That's in the way. Our goal is to exalt Jesus and to amplify the gospel. So from this point forward, they knew they could not get in God's way. Why would they want to? And this is really sobering. If God's way... Was about reaching, saving, and welcoming people. Anything that withstood or did not assist this meant that they were in the way of or headed away from him. Now, I don't think I've taken too much liberty in that statement from where we what we've read. If you disagree with me, I'd like to convince you. I don't think that that is a far fetched conclusion to come to because what I read in the rest of Acts is a church that changes its strategy completely. Being obedient to this plan of God would be complicated and messy, but it would be completely worth it because hell couldn't stop it. Peter knew from that moment on as the leader, as the trend and tone setter, he could not stand in God's way. As he returned to that place where Jesus kicked the whole movement off, it dawned on him, who am I that I should stand in God's way? Way. Peter remembered Jesus saying, I'm going to build my church and hell can't stop it. And there he was attempting to stop it. And he realized, what am I doing? Here in this meeting, the church was attempting to stop it. And he stands before them and says, what are you doing? Peter says, I've stood in God's way before multiple times. And over and over again, I come back to this place. What am I doing? The same man that made that statement of faith had worked against it a few times. And church, this is where I want to talk to us for a minute. We gather here and we sing how we love Jesus. We are the church and we give, saying, thy will be done. We pray over everything. We shake hands and smile and tell everyone that we'll pray for them, that we love them. We hear the gospel presented clearly and pledge to obey the word of God. Yet so often we do things contrary to the confessions that we make. We let sin take control of our lives and we inhibit, that inhibits us from being the people God wants us to be. And we allow pride and fear and selfishness to hold us back from our mission. You know, my only response to this is what their response was in verse 18. Peter makes it clear, we've got to treat people like they're loved because they are. Every time I needed bailing out, Jesus was there for me, Peter says. Every time Peter blew it, Jesus made a special invitation to bring him back. Peter says, church, we've got to start taking this mission seriously. We are on holy ground and the holy purpose we've been given is too great for us to turn away from. Lest we be found standing in God's way. And who are we to do that? You say, well, Justin, you know, there's a lot of things out there that, you know, that, that there's a lot of hurdles out there and a lot of difficulties engaging with cultures and people that are different. You know, I can understand why the Jews were skeptical, but let me just remind you, the greatest hurdles to their mission were sin and death. Let's go to the next slide. The greatest hurdle to their mission was sin and death. And Jesus had washed their sin away and rolled the stone away. So there was nothing greater than those two things. And if Jesus removed those two obstacles and those two barriers, who are we to act as if God can't remove any other one? Church, you know, where I land with this is it's not enough to simply not stand in the way. We must walk in and follow God's way. If we're ever going to get things done and see the church come to life like it was in Acts, we've got to do what they go on to do. And here's what we learn for the rest of the book if the church was going to be obedient to and effective through the great commission they would have to fight against the religious drift of prejudice of arrogance and of indifference that says prejudice says i don't like them arrogance says i'm better than them indifference says i don't care about them one of those three reasons was the reason why they didn't want to go to the gentiles We have got to fight to overcome these because these same things hold the church back today. We fight prejudice with love. We fight arrogance with compassion. We fight indifference with outreach. Intentional, generous, grace-driven ministry. We may not be held back by the same prejudices and arrogances and indifferences as they were. We might be held back by worse, I don't know. So I wanna give you some questions to take home with you. If indeed we want to reach the world like the church did in Acts, if indeed we want to stand, we don't want to stand in God's way, we want want to walk in His way and follow His way and lead growth and change in our world, we got to answer some questions. Do we love the world like God does? Let me just answer that for you. Nobody does. But the Bible doesn't stop telling us that we should, does it? So that means we got some work to do, doesn't it? Every, every few chapters in Acts, they have to come back to these questions. Do we love the world like God does? Well, we've got to keep on going. We've got to keep on loving people. We've got to keep being intentional. Do you realize the same grace that saved us can save them? If you don't, be reminded. And I know this might sound crass, but do we even care? A lot of people don't. Y'all care because you're here on a Wednesday night. But there's still work to be done, isn't there? Maybe we stopped loving. maybe we stopped understanding. Maybe we stopped caring we didn't even realize it. Maybe we've never loved or understood or cared like God does. Either way, it's time we start loving, understanding, and reaching and caring. The future, the health, and the growth of the church depends on it. These are three areas I think each of us must consider and pray about and prioritize every single day. I believe we are obligated to, lest we be found standing in God's way. These three things prevented the church 2,000 years ago, and I think if we focus on countering these three things, here's something important. If we focus on countering these three things, God will bless our efforts, whether directly or indirectly, related to these challenges. If we don't counter them, they will corner us, because we live in a very hostile and divided world, and the church is not removed from that. Again, it's about actively seeking to walk in God's way, not withstand, not stand in the way of. So a few more questions before we're done. Who do you naturally avoid or harbor ill will towards? Maybe somebody or somebodies. Maybe a certain group of people. The word prejudice means that I just don't like somebody. For, you have reasons, and maybe they're good reasons. I don't know. I don't think they are. The Bible says they're not, but I don't know what your, I don't know what your heart's going through. I don't know what they did to you. But the Bible says you got to get rid of that. Repent of it. And not just say I'm sorry for it, but overcome it and do better than it. So who do you naturally avoid and harbor ill will towards? How can you begin loving them like God does? It might be a simple baby step of not turning away from them. It's a start. But keep going. Who do you naturally avoid and harbor ill will towards? Go and do. Go and love them like God loves them. Second question, who do you look down on or feel better than? Is there a person or a group of people that you kind of feel better than, you're kind of arrogant towards, and you don't do it on purpose, but they just don't help themselves. They They make themselves look bad. Who do you look down on? And how can you begin having compassion for them and showing compassion to them? I know they don't deserve it, but you didn't either, and I didn't either, and God still gave it to us. So how can we overcome that? Go and do it. I I know these are uncomfortable, but this is the questions the church had to ask in Acts. And you know what? They got up from their selfishness and said, you know what? We're going to go to the world. And they start a church in a foreign Gentile city in the very, very next few verses. They did it not because they wanted to, but because they said they had to. If they didn't counter these things, they would be controlled by them. Last question. Who do you have zero sympathy for or zero concern for? Somebody or somebodies, who are they? How can you begin caring for them and reaching out to them? Go and do it. I'm telling you, if if we don't counter these, they will corner us. This is the difference between Acts 11 and Acts 12. This is the difference between me and you being in this church tonight. If we do this in our personal lives, if our churches are full of people who do this, our churches will grow. And by doing this, we'll, be, we'll even notice the things in our churches that might still project those beacons of prejudice and arrogance and indifference. And we'll be united around this mission that says we've got to make our churches open to everybody and get rid of anything that might not be inviting. We'll be less critical, more determined, with more vision and more passion. You know why we must do this? Because the keys still work. The door is still open. Jesus is still king and his spirit still draws. There is nothing wrong with the church. Are we, are we gonna stand in God's way and withhold his good news and prevent it from changing lives? Are we, are we, are we? I know you can't do it on your own. I know you can't. And if somebody next to you doesn't do it, and they hurt your purpose, then God help them. But you don't let somebody else get in your way. This isn't a matter of the church being dead or doomed. It's a matter of the church being faithful and obedient. Church, we stand on the precipice of the promised land. We can take it if only we follow God's plan. If all of us together refuse to stand in God's way, but vow to facilitate and enable his way. Let me ask you this. Don't you want to stand in God's power and see him change lives, isn't that greater than holding on to things that have no good in them that keep other people from seeing God's goodness? Let me ask you this. Aren't you glad somebody allowed God to use them to reach you? They may have had a good reason to look down on you, to think they're better than you. To have no concern for you. But for whatever reason, they laid that aside. And they loved you. And they had compassion on you. And they reached out to you. And look where you are right now. The next generation depends on this generation going to work. As a pastor, I will never stop preaching what I believe is the lifeline of for the church's future. The difference between Act 11 and the rest of history. So let's get to work. Let's go and do what they decided to do because they chose to not stand in God's way. Let me pray for you. Father, thank you so much that somebody chose to not stand in God's way of bringing me grace. Instead, they walked in and followed his way and showed me that I had a place. God, whether we were saved in a church through a preacher's message or through a witness, somewhere back along that line, somebody undeserving and without natural pathway to the church, somebody reached out to somebody that made a difference. God, it's so sobering to read this monumental point in history where Peter stands in front of people that could have took his life and says, Guys, I know this is not what we believe and not what we've been told and not what we feel good about, but I'm not going to stand in God's way. Y'all can join me or y'all can leave me. I am going to do what I know I've got to do. And the church radically transforms after this. They plant, a build, they plant a church on the other side of the world, not knowing what would happen to it, not knowing what would come of that group. And yet it's through that group that you go on and do incredible things. So Father, we stand on the precipice of the world being revolutionized by the gospel if only we all roll our sleeves up and say the great commission is more important than anything it may bring inconvenient to me, anything that might be uncomfortable for me, I'm going to love, I'm going to have compassion, and I'm going to reach out to everybody I can because there's nothing more important. God, thank you for this church. Thank you for these people. Thank you for their faithfulness and their commitment to you, and I pray you would raise up from them a generation of evangelists, a generation of zealous, passionate, sold out, driven by the gospel, generous and gracious saints, and use them to change Lincolnton and all around it. We ask this in the gracious name of Jesus. Amen.